Absolutely. Yes. Oh, well, thank you very much for the unanimous uh, invite back. That's very uh, encouraging to me, and I hope I won't disappoint you uh, this evening. Um, thank you very much as well for the, the, uh, the really encouraging time of sharing uh, that we just had from you guys. Um, and that obviously uh, brings up actually a number of things that relate to uh, the problem of evil. When we had testimony from someone about healing, we had testimony from someone about uh, a tragedy in their life that they'd recently gone through. I'm, I'm being particularly generally vague because I'm recording this from podcast channels, so I don't want to you know, broadcast personal details and things. Um, but uh, you know, what do you do with the fact that we you know, believe sometimes God does heal stuff? Well, does, does that make it all the more worse that sometimes he just seems not to? Um, uh, we had hymns about the, the beauty of the creation. And, uh, you know, but also there's an ugly side to the creation when you look at the world. Um, and, and indeed, even sometimes, and this is an analogy that's sometimes been thrown up in this area, when you think, think of the, the beauty of the trees in autumn... And then think of the fact that that beauty of those trees in autumn is produced by a whole load of death happening. That's what the beauty of autumn is, a whole load of death happening in the natural world. And that seems, in a sense, a perfectly good thing. Part of the cycle of the seasons and nature and so on, and the world fit for purpose as God created it, uh, and his um, uh, constancy in upholding the cycle of nature and so on. Um, that both the Bible and philosophers from the year dot have, have, have pointed to in some of the arguments for the existence of God. Um, talking to people earlier as we came in about some of their different essays that they're doing and how everything is connected to everything. Someone doing an essay about the passability or impassability of God. And they're saying, but if God is passable and suffers with us, does that make him more relatable to us? Well, what about the fact that if, if I... I'm suffering because someone else is suffering. That makes me want to do something for them. But sometimes God doesn't seem to. So maybe a passable God is harder to... (laughs) How can I really do this essay without doing another essay on another topic? So, um, you know, uh, this is not an issue that the problem of evil, uh, where in an hour and a half of an evening we're going to be able to put it to bed (laughs) tonight. Um, I don't think if you could say everything that could be said on this topic, you would actually put it to bed in the sense of getting a comprehensive understanding uh, of God in relation to the evil and suffering in the world. What I do think you could do is say enough to mean that it is still reasonable to believe and trust in God despite the evil and suffering in the world. And I hope we'll have enough time this evening to be a bit mind-stretching and to um, look at a couple of of central issues in this area and give you some indications uh, of the kind of replies, the kind of dialogue that's been going on uh, between uh, atheists and Christians uh, in this area in the realms of philosophy. Uh, I'm starting with a bit of shameless self-promotion here. Um, this book, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, uh, is due to be published in this February, uh, so next month. And uh, I'm going to look a little bit at how C.S. Lewis 
uh, dealt with the problem of evil. And he's particularly interesting as someone to put into dialogue with the new atheists because, of course, he himself was an atheist um, and uh, went to Oxford University, where a lot of today's new atheists went to. Um, and, indeed, Lewis was um, professorial colleagues with a lot of people who were the teachers like the doctoral supervisors and so on, of famous new atheists of the de- today. They're only one intellectual generation down the road, really. Um, so there's an interesting dialogue partner in that sense. Um, I'm not going to just lecture from the front. I'm going to sort of do a bit, and then I'll stop for some questions and do another sort of section. So we'll kind of break it up as we go through. You've got handouts, and I'll also email through... Um, I've put a copy on the table, but I'll email through a chapter from a forthcoming... Um, Christian philosophy textbook that I'm publishing at the end of next year, uh, the chapter on the problem of evil, and you can have an, a free advanced copy of that as well. So there we go. So here's the uh, young C.S. Lewis. In uh, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he says, Several years before I read Lucretius, I felt the force of his argument, and surely it's the strongest of them all, for atheism. And he quotes from Lucretius' poem, Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. And so little by little, with fluctuations I cannot now trace, I became an apostate, dropping my faith with no sense of loss, but with the greatest relief. And as a young man, he became uh, disillusioned with his childhood faith. Of course, you'll probably know that his mother died when he was very young from cancer um, and he was sent off to boarding school in in England uh, and uh, suffered rather horribly there at the hands of a headmaster who was actually going mad at one of his schools and used to beat the children and things and uh, yeah and then of course he went into the trenches of World War One and had his uh, birthday in the trenches of World War One having uh, sort of taken a break from going to Oxford to have his uh, academic career, the war happened. I've got a little clip here uh, from the the DVD, The Question of God, um, which talks about Lewis's experiences in the First World War. (coughs) And uh, someone hasn't plugged the sound in. But don't worry, I'll just use my own sound system. Click-a-click, that away from there. Always bring a backup. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. a nifty bit of kit that I take around with me. Let's try that again. The war was a kind of crusade to the youth of Europe. They were convinced that the enemy were demons. They were convinced that theirs was a cause worth dying for. And nine million did. I have gone to sleep marching, and woken again and found myself still marching. Without a blade of grass, the horror 
their smashed men, still moving like half-crushed beetles. Lewis was on intimate terms with pain. He was wounded in World War I. He saw a sergeant who had saved his life blown up next to him. In other words, he knew, as, as that generation did, the horrors of the Great War. Douglas uh, Gresham, uh, the son of Joy uh, that Lewis married late in life, his stepson, um, talks in one of his books about um, Lewis spending his 19th birthday in the front line trenches of World War I and then being wounded in this Battle of Arras where there was a creeping barrage from the British where they lobbed shells over their advancing troops, keeping pace with the advancing troops to, to sort of keep everybody's heads down on the other side, get your troops close to them. On this occasion, the British creeping barrage crept in the wrong direction. As they advanced with bayonets at the ready, the barrage stopped advancing and began to come back towards them. Soon Jack and his men were being bombarded by their own artillery from behind them, and to his helpless fury, Jack, everyone called Lewis Jack, watched his men being blown to pieces in the constant roar of their own artillery support. Suddenly Jack saw a blinding light, everything went completely silent, and then the ground came up slowly and hit him in the face. Jack had been hit by both the concussion and shrapnel from a British shell. His trusted sergeant had been between Jack and the shell when it exploded and was blown to bits. And he was uh, invalided out of World War I and um, had various bits of shrapnel. And he always had a bit of shrapnel. It was a bit too close to his heart at the time for them to operate on. And they just left it in there. Um, So this was a man who knew a bit about suffering. But he also noticed a certain sort of atheistic view of the world, you might, you might call a sort of scientistic or positivistic view of the world, that he describes in a couple of places like this. It's on a scientific view of the world, the world of facts without one trace of value, and the world of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood, justice or injustice, confront one another and no reproachment is possible. You get this view where you hear people talking about the the difference between facts and values, which of course automatically assumes that values are not facts. Um, In a famous essay of his, he says, it's widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought doesn't. On this view, when we say that the universe is a space-time continuum, we're saying something about reality. Whereas if we say that men ought to have a living wage, we're only describing our own subjective feelings. Now, Lewis, even as an atheist, didn't hold with this view. He thought there really was such a thing as... Evil. It was an objective fact that some things were right and some things were wrong. Evil's a real thing, a thing that's really there, not made up by ourselves, he says. And Lewis also believed that evil was something that any god worthy of the the name objectively 
ought not to permit. If you're going to say, God shouldn't allow that because that's wrong. And indeed, that's what Lewis wanted to say. So for Lewis as an atheist, the evident existence of evil justified his atheism. As he explains in his book, The Problem of Pain, which is still a good place to start on this subject with. says, not many years ago, when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why don't you believe in God? My reply would have run something like this. If you ask me to believe that this universe is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit, a blackguard, as Lewis describes God as being in one of his early poems. Near Christianity, he says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Uh, What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show were bad and senseless (coughs) from A to Z, so to speak, A to Z, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction to it? Um, A man feels wet when he falls into water because a man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Lewis uses these lovely analogies uh, in the very process of arguing for, for things. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. And you'll find that's the view that most new atheists today hold. Not all, but most. And a lot of atheists, although a lot of atheists would would disagree with it, a lot of atheists would, like Lewis as an atheist, say, no, there really is evil. He said, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please my fancies. So in the very act of trying to prove that God doesn't exist, in other words, that the whole reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. (laughs) Just as if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. Now that kind of pointing out that the problem of evil as an argument against God is something of a boomerang attack that's likely to come back and hit you in the back of the head when you throw it at belief in God. Take that, God. Ooh, ow, hang on a minute. You know, um, as we'll see, it doesn't solve the whole problem, but as, as Lewis says, it, it, it points out that this, this kind of atheist attack is, is too simplistic. Uh, and it, there is a sense in which it, it rebounds. And Lewis found it rebounding upon him because he wasn't willing to give up the idea of an objective evil 
which meant he had to have some idea of an objective standard of goodness. And where is he going to find that? Uh, if nature, the space-time matter system, is the only thing in existence, um, this is from this little essay on living in the atomic age, then of course there can be no other source for our standards. Our, our standards just come from the world, from our evolutionary history or our society or whatever. They must, like everything else, be the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind forces. All that we can say about nature red in tooth and claw is quite inexplicable on the theory that we are simply natural creatures. If this world is the only world, how did we come to find its laws either so dreadful or so comic? If there's no straight line elsewhere, how do we discover that nature's line is crooked? The illustration again. So you could put his argument like this. Premise one. This is where I get into, because I'm a philosopher, you've got to get into syllogisms, you see. Two truth claims from which a conclusion follows. Um, if these were both true, would that have to be true? And are those both true? Those are the questions to ask, basically. Um, premise one, if metaphysical naturalism, materialism, etc., is true, then nothing is objectively evil. It's just our, our, our own subjective feelings. It's just the outcome of a, a meaningless, unintended process that hasn't intended us uh, you know, to have the right view. We've just That's the view we happen to have. You know. Premise two, something is objectively evil. Conclusion, therefore, metaphysical naturalism is false. I think this is a very powerful argument against naturalism. But then you can go further. The defiance of the good atheist hurled that an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious homage to something in or behind that cosmos which he recognises as infinitely valuable and authoritative. For if mercy and justice were really only private whims of his own, he could not go on being indignant. The fact that he arraigns heaven itself for disregarding these values, means that at some level of his mind he knows they are enthroned in a higher heaven still. To make it a bit more explicit, we're now arguing, premise one, if a wholly good personal God, with a small g, doesn't exist, then objective moral values can't exist. But objective moral values do exist. Here's something that's really evil. Therefore, a wholly good personal God exists. So now it's not only an argument against naturalism, it's at least an argument in favour of some kind of theism. A theism in which there is an objectively good, personal, one might also argue necessarily existent, God. D.J.L. Mackey, who was a famous uh, Oxford atheist, in his book, The Miracle of Theism, said this, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. Thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God. Now, of course, J.R. Mackey is an atheist. So what's he going to do with that admission? If I admit there are things that are really right and wrong, that is a good argument for thinking there's a God. 
well, clearly nothing's really right and wrong then, is it? That's what Mackey thought. And indeed, he, he wrote a book um, on ethics called Ethics Inventing Right and Wrong. Right and wrong's not something we discover, it's something we invent. But then as Lewis points out, if you want to hold that position, you can't use the problem of evil as an argument against the existence of God. <laughs> so, let's pause there. That's a little section on, on Lewis and uh, the problem of evil. And one way, just before we start looking at a couple of deconstructing arguments from evil against God, one of the ways in which it at least partially kind of rebounds upon the people who want to, to use it is the the most frequently used, the best argument against. Does anyone want me to clarify anything there? I think I read uh, somewhere that uh, the new atheists being referred to as Christian atheists because hmm. the presuppositions are kind of Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Richard Dawkins has even somewhere described himself as a, a Protestant atheist, you know, because that, that was his childhood upbringing, and he went to a church school, and yeah, there's a, a, a sense in which that's what they're primarily opposed to, for, for all their writing sort of saying we're against religion in general, and so on, a lot of the particular illustrations and so on. And the things they actually rail against are, are Christian views, or also Christian they, things. They yeah. have a, almost like a Christian, Christian worldview in the way they approach things. You know, this this uh, you know, problem of evil, etc. Just highlighting. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly. Well, here is one of the things. The new atheists in general, a generalisation would be to say that most new atheists are moral subjectivists. They will say, and Dawkins will say, the universe, there is no good, no evil. And most new atheists don't use the problem of evil as an argument against God. And they can't, can they? That, and you see why, yeah. So, um, just, sorry, I think, I think I understand what you're saying. I'm mm. just going to check it. Do, right? yeah, great. Um, you're, I think what you're saying is, because objectively good and evil exists, you, if you argue that, there must be a God. Yes, I, I argued that very briefly. I could expand a little bit on, on that. And if you're saying there's no God, then there can't be good and evil, as, yeah. as defined by, like, it's obvious, everyone can yeah, see it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Question about um, this, this idea of moral values. Mm. Somebody who argues that actually we have those moral values because we're social animals and... Mm. We need them to survive as social functional groups. Yeah. How does that fit? Yeah. Well, let me. Philosophers love distinctions because they're really useful, keeping things neat and tidy. So, a distinction between um, how do I know about, or how, how do I come by the belief that torturing small children for fun is wrong? Okay. And is it true that, is it a fact that, torturing small children for fun is wrong. Okay? Um, raising issues of, well, you know, our, in our evolutionary history, it was uh, useful to the survival of the species um, that we um, have been inculcated with a feeling of, ugh, against torturing small children for fun. Okay? Um, 
Well, if that's all you're claiming, that's perfectly compatible with the claim that it is true that torturing small children for fun is wrong. It's just that the way in which we've, we've, we've come to notice this fact is what you're describing there. It's when you say, and this process of evolutionary history is all there is, is all there is to say about morality. What, you're really, what they're really saying is there is no such thing as the fact that torturing small children for fun is wrong. All there is is a feeling that we've been given by our, the past of our species. And it's that nothing buttery, that, that all there is to it is, which is the crucial thing. So I don't think any, you could, but you don't need to deny any story about how, how come we, we have these feelings or these beliefs... The crucial thing is the, the nothing buttery, the, and that's all there is to it. Um, and and on, on that issue, I would say two things. One, if they really are taking that position of moral subjectivism, do not let them get away with using the problem of evil as an argument against God. <laughs> okay? Don't even let them... Uh, because they... Because they're just thinking evil's... What it's, yeah, it's just it's just a whim, private whim, as, as Lewis is saying, and and it's not much of an argument to say you, you know if there were a god he'd be doing stuff that I happen not to like. <laughs> what the arguments Lewis said needs to be is if there is a god he'd be doing stuff that he really ought not to do if he did exist, so he doesn't. The really ought not to is is, is crucial there. Um, the other thing is, I would point such a person to the arguments of atheist moral philosophers who argue in defence of the objective reality of ethics, of right and wrong. Um, and indeed, usually when I make the moral argument in a debate or something, I will quote from atheists in defence of the premise that there are objective moral values. So, so for atheists, if they argue the, the defence of objective moral values, how do they explain that if they don't recognise a higher deity? I think the kind of simple answer to this is they don't. They will do a good job um, of arguing that there are such things as objective right and wrongs. And And that we can know that there are and that we can know that there are, even if we don't believe in God. Okay. Well, you know, St. Paul said that. Um, a, a lot of people will, particularly new atheists again, trick, will, will mischaracterise the moral argument as the claim that in order to believe in right and wrong, you've got to believe in God. Or in order to do the right thing, you've got to believe in God. Or you wouldn't know that loving your children as opposed to torturing them is the right way to behave if you didn't believe in the Bible or something like that. And there again, they're making this how-do-you-know-that claim, this epistemological claim, rather than dealing with what the moral argument deals with, which is this, <coughs> what kind of thing is a right and wrong, and, and where, where in the sort of furniture of reality do you put such a thing? Does it fit with a naturalistic worldview or with a theistic worldview better? 
that, that, that is, those are the issues that the moral argument is, is, is raising, not any issues about, oh, you know, you need to believe in God in order to be a good person or anything, you know. St. Paul says, you know, the Gentiles have the law written on their heart, their conscience is now condemning and now even saying that they're doing the right thing. Um, so I wouldn't let people <coughs> mischaracterise the argument. But, yeah, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a very good book. If you want to read an atheist on moral objectivism, get um, Russ Schaefer Landau's um, little book, Whatever Happened to Good and Evil. And the first part of that good, he does book, he does a brilliant job of arguing that they've, you know, it's obvious there really are such things as objective right and wrongs, and here are various arguments that people have given against that, and they don't work. And then the next part of the book he turns to, and some people will say that there's a connection between recognising objective moral values and thinking that there's a God, and then he will try and argue that that connection doesn't work. And there, I think he does a really bad job. <laughs> I, I think there are really good arguments for, for drawing that connect, connection, for, for supporting the other premise of the, the moral argument. Um, but it's, it's interesting to sort of note that you can find atheists who will say, yes, of course there are objective moral values, but of course that doesn't imply anything about there being a god, like Russ Schaefer Landau. And atheists like J.L. Mackey, who will say, well, of, of course, if there were objective moral values, that would imply something about there being a god, but, of course, there aren't any, there aren't any objective moral values, so that's not a problem. Now, if, if those two atheists are both half right and half wrong in the right directions, as it were, then you've got both premises of the moral argument supported. Um, and, and that's a sort of nice sort of rhetorical approach I like to take to actually making the argument, just to argue both of the premises from out of the mouth of atheists. Just one will support one argument, one premise, and the other will support the other, and they'll disagree with each other about <laughs> you know, which premises to support or deny. Yeah. Yeah. So something which kind of implied that the new atheists were kind of pulling a fast one that they were saying something which um, philosophers wouldn't generally agree with if they examine the argument. So is there a kind of division of Oh, yeah. There's a huge division. Just as there are different sorts of Christian, there are different sorts of of atheist. Uh, And there certainly are those atheists who, you know, roll their eyes up to the ceiling when you mention new atheists and sort of say, oh, the sort of atheist who gives atheism a bad name, you know. Just as much as I could mention certain Christians who would make your eyes roll to to the ceiling, oh, the sort of Christian that gives Christianity a bad name. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, Michael Roos, for example, an atheist philosopher, um, put on the front cover of Alistair McGrath's little book, Responding to the God Delusion, a quote saying, you know, Richard Dawkins makes me ashamed to be an atheist and Alistair McGrath shows why. <laughs> on the front cover of a Christian book, like, this is how, and yeah, there are heated um, discussions and debates between different kinds of atheists, just as there are between different kinds of Christians sometimes, yeah. <sighs> so... Uh, we'll see how many of these three different problems of evil we'll get through, but we'll start with the, what's called the logical problem. 
and hopefully look at the evidential problem and then, if we get time, the existential uh, as well. Now, the logical problem of evil is really the claim that it's, it's inconsistent, it's logically incompatible to say that evil exists and that God exists. You, can, you, could, you could say one, or we can say the other, but you can't say both because they contradict each other. You know, um, just as you can say a geometrical shape has three sides, or you could say that it has four sides, but you can't say it's got three sides and it's got four sides. Because if it's got three, it doesn't have four, and if it's got four, it doesn't have three. <laughs> it's one or the other. It's one or the other. Evil, evil exists, or God exists. But not both. Maybe, maybe neither of them. Maybe there's no evil and there's no God. But there certainly can't be evil and God. It's just impossible. Um, and if that claim's right, then this is, of course, a knockdown argument against theism. Dead in the water, if, that, if that's right. But um, it's not actually, on the face of it, obvious, just obvious, that this claim, evil exists, and this claim, God exists, are contradictory. If this, if this was, um, you know, uh, this is a picture of a three-sided object, this is a picture of a four-sided object, they'd be obviously contradictory. So, you know, I, I, um, I know how to speak English, I don't know how to speak English. Obviously contradictory. Evil exists. God exists. What's the, what's the problem? You know, sometimes people just raise the, the question: even if that's a sort of knockdown. Well, if there's a God, how come there's so much evil in the world? Well, that's a question. It's not an argument. <laughs> One might ask to someone: Well, okay, but what's the what's the actual argument here? Does the fact that I might not know an answer to that question, does that mean that you've got a good argument against God? Well, not necessarily at all, really. You've got to be a lot more specific about what you mean by evil and what you mean by God. Particularly unpacking if they mean by evil something objective or not, tie into what we just look at. Um, Michael Peterson says, this alleged inconsistency is not obvious. It's not explicit or formal in nature. So to make this this purported, what must be a purportedly implicit, inconsistently explicit, need to make some additional propositions specified. So maybe people are having a bit of a think about it and they come up with something like this. Well, when we say God exists, what we're really claiming is that there's, um, you know, there's a being who's maximally powerful, who's cognitively perfect, who's wholly good, who freely created the world, and that there's objective evil in the world. We've seen from Lewis, we need that for the argument to work. Um, and it's, it's meant to be saying all of this, which is somehow inconsistent. If that's what you mean by God, and that's what you mean by evil, then they're inconsistent. Uh, Robin Leprovdon I think, puts the, the logical problem of evil about as well as you can be put. And he puts it like this. 
being very careful to kind of try to draw out what he thinks is the contradiction. If God is all-knowing, he'll be aware of suffering. So you couldn't have a layout clause by, by saying, well, you know, God would get rid of all this suffering, but he doesn't know about it. If you try that, then you say, ah, oh, but any God worthy of the name ought to know about it, because he's meant to be, this is what you mean by God. Okay? So I'm not going to let you have that get out. It would be an easy get out, wouldn't it? Um, if he's all-powerful, he'd be able to prevent the suffering. I'm not going to let you say, well, of course God knows about the suffering, but he just can't do anything about it. You know, he's tried his best, but he just, you know, what can you do? Well, I'm not going to let you get away with saying that, obviously. You know, what sort of God are you talking about? Um, if he's perfectly good, he'll, he'll desire to prevent suffering, surely. Second premise, but clearly he does not prevent suffering or evil. It's clearly there is this ob- objective, evil. Conclusion that he draws from this, and this is very is significant, I think, the conclusion that he can draw, three, either there is no such deity, no deity who's all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good, or if there is a deity, he's not all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly good, though he may be one or two of these. Okay. So now when you try to make the argument a lot more explicit, it's interesting. This is um, new atheist Sam Harris, the one new atheist who does make the moral argument, and interesting, the one new atheist who's a moral objectivist. He says, if God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities, or he does not care to. God, therefore, is either impotent or evil, or non-existent. This is not quite anymore an argument for the non, for, that theism is, is false, per se. It's not an argument for atheism. It's not an argument for a naturalistic worldview. It's not even an argument against a belief in some kind of a creator God. It provides evidence for some kind of a God, as we've seen from Lewis, a good God. So it's only an argument against certain types of theism. So as soon as the atheists tried to make explicit what the contradiction was meant to be, they found out that the argument, even if it works, even if, that, if, it's, even if it were a sound argument, it's not an argument for atheism, it's not an argument for naturalism, it's not an argument against all kinds of theism. It's only an argument against certain views of the nature of God. Which is an interesting thing to note about an argument that's usually wheeled out as the best, main, major argument for atheism. That is not even an argument for atheism in that sense. Even if it worked. And of course I'm not going to grant them that it does. Um, I'm going to unpick it bit by bit. So then we start asking, philosophers started asking, having sort of tightened up what the argument actually was and what it could do if it worked, started asking some difficult questions of it. 
of some of the assumptions that had to go into some of those assumptions that had to go into trying to bring out this supposed contradiction. Like this, will an all-good God necessarily desire to prevent all evil? And must he necessarily desire to prevent all evil now, rather than, say, later? There were other assumptions built in, still unearthing assumptions in the argument. So here's some quotes from some atheists on this. Richard Gale, uh, in his book on the nature and existence of God, says, We often feel justified in bringing about or not preventing some evil so that a greater evil can be avoided or an outweighing good realised. So he's saying that the assumption in that logical problem of evil that if God is good, then he must desire to get rid of evil. Well, that's not, that's not a necessarily true claim. You've got to nuance that a bit more. And when you bring that nuance in, it suddenly opens up a, a bit of room for a more rounded theistic position. Or Robin Leprovdan, whose problem of evil argument we quoted admits suffering may be part of the divine design insofar as suffering is an essential consequence of some greater good. So Mackey, again, he said, the opposition between good and evil might be construed in such a way that a wholly good God would not, after all, eliminate evil as far as he could. So he's omnipotent, he could get rid of it, and he's good, and he knows about it. But it's not actually necessarily true that that is incompatible with the claim that there is something that's evil. Because of what Gail and Prodon are saying, you can say... That he wouldn't, after all, eliminate evil as far as he could. It, it might be argued that there are limits, he says, to what even an omnipotent being can do. The claim that God's omnipotent isn't the claim that um, you can, as Lewis says, um, a, a, an impossibility doesn't become a possibility just by sticking the words God can before it. <laughs> so if I say, um, is it possible to create a, a, spherical, uh, a spherical cube. Well, no, I can't do that. But, oh, look, God can create a spherical cube. It doesn't make the concept of a spherical cube suddenly make sense because you stick God can before it, even if that God is omnipotent. Omnipotent clearly doesn't mean being able to do things that can't be done. Okay? Omnipotence is the claim that you can do anything that can be done. But there are limitations upon what, what can be done because not everything is possible. <laughs> okay? And be, being omnipotent doesn't suddenly mean you can do things that are impossible. Uh, so, Mackey says there are limits to what even an omnipotent being can do. And it would usually be said that God cannot do what's logically impossible. And this, we can agree, would be no real departure from what we mean by omnip omnipotence. Um, so maybe you could say, actually, 
God couldn't get rid of certain evils, at least if he were, if they were needed, if they were necessary to achieve certain goods or prevent certain evils that were, say, worse. You know, and he can't say, "Well, okay, we often feel justified in in." in, say, not preventing some evil so that a greater evil can be avoided, then if they want to come back, yeah, but, well, but we're limited. God's meant to be omnipotent. Surely he can arrange to get that good without the eat. But Mackie, the atheist, and says, well, but maybe not. <laughs> That's not necessarily true, that comeback. So Mackie concludes the problem of evil does not after all show that the central doctrines of theism a rounded theistic concept of God are logically inconsistent with one another there isn't a knockdown argument here against God Um, atheist William L. Rowe says this some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of the theistic God No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. Indeed, granted incompatibilism, you know what incompatibilism is talking about, Um, this is about the debate about free will, whether having the kind of free will that gives you moral responsibility and so on is compatible or not with everything that you do being predetermined. So is determinism, saying one thing just causes another thing that causes the next thing and so on, is determinism compatible with the claim that we have free will or not? Incompatibilism is the position that says, no, those are not compatible. You can't, it is contradictory to say that you've got free will and that what you did was determined and not up to you, outside of your control. Granted incompatibilism, there's a fairly compelling argument for the view that the existence of evil is logically consistent with the existence of the theistic God. Now this is, this is a further admission down here. What we've looked at so far is atheists admitting when they try and make this supposed contradiction between God and evil explicit, A, the argument doesn't achieve as much as they initially thought it would, but B, actually you find that there isn't, you, no one's actually been able to show that there is a logical contradiction involved in saying evil exists and God exists. Now Roe is admitting that as well, and now he's going on and saying actually there's a good argument that can be made for thinking that the claims evil exists and God exists are compatible. Not just that you haven't shown that they're incompatible, And so, well, for all we can tell, they're compatible. But a good argument for showing that these two claims are consistent with one another. And this draws upon this issue about compatibilism, incompatibilism, free will, called the free will defence. This lovely bearded chap here is Alvin Plantinga. If you haven't heard of him, uh, acquaint yourself with him. This is the world's uh, number one philosopher of religion. And he's a Christian in America at Notre Dame University, recently retired, but still publishing and lecturing. Uh, This guy was central to the the revolution in Anglo-American philosophy 
uh, in the 1960s that brought back metaphysics and arguing for God and uh, Christian philosophy made a big comeback, um, large part due uh, to the efforts of this guy. And one of the things that Plantinga argued in this area about the logical problem of evil was this, that a world containing creatures who are significantly free, who have this kind of libertarian um, moral responsibility-giving free will, is more valuable than a world containing no significantly free creatures. Thinks that that is a good thing. (coughs) Which I think a lot of people would be prepared to grant. To create creatures capable of moral good, of this sort of responsibility, God must create creatures capable of moral evil, must give libertarian free will. That's a necessary condition, he says, of the responsibility that piggybacks on that kind of free will. So even omnipotence can't give that kind of valuable responsibility without giving the necessary precondition of it, libertarian free will. Um, God must create creatures capable of moral evil, and he can't give these creatures this freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from doing so. That would be giving with one hand and taking away with the other at exactly the same moment. It wouldn't be to give it at all. So, you might then think, oh, well, okay, well, maybe that accounts for the consistency between moral evil, the evil that people choose to do. But what about the evils of the suffering caused by the material world? What about, you know, little children being squashed in earthquakes you know nobody chose to have an earthquake uh, but this as a defense this is a way of rebutting the claim that it's logically impossible for god and evil to be consistent so plantinga pulls a very canny move he says this let's add in the implausible this is highly implausible but I don't need this claim to be plausible. All I need is for this claim to be logically possible. Okay? It's a very low standard what we're working to here in rebutting the logical problem of evil because the atheists set their standard so high, this is, they've got to prove that there's an inconsistency. So as long as we can show a possible way in which these God and evil can be consistent, will have met the challenge. We don't have to show a plausible way. We just have to show a a possible way. We've done it with human freedom. What about natural evil? Um, Demons do it. Misusing their God-given free will. Now, that's highly implausible. (laughs) Okay? Okay. And as Christians, we might say on occasion, we think actually it is plausible to chalk up certain instances of evil to demonic misuse of free will. But the claim that you know, all natural evil is, is caused by demons, you know, that's misusing their free will and their power to do stuff, well, that's highly implausible. But is it logically possible? Well, so he says, you know, okay, natural evil is caused by demons misusing their free will. That's sufficient to prove the logical compatibility of God and evil. And most atheist philosophers agree. 
<laughs> See, the, the crucial difference here, what, what sort of planting a hit on, the difference between what he calls a defence and a theodicy. And a defence is the attempt to give a logically possible account of reality showing that God and evil can coexist. <coughs> a defence needn't be, needn't be true to work. It just needs to be possibly true. A theodicy is a logically possible and plausible, at least, account of reality, claiming to show how God and evil actually, truly do coexist. Giving a theodicy is a lot harder than giving a defence. The bar, the evidence bar, as it were, is a lot higher when you're trying to give a theodicy. If someone asks you, well, if, if there's a God, how come there's all this evil? And you say, well, I think here are his reasons. There are seven of them. <laughs> As if you could. You know. um, but Plandinger says, I don't need to do that in order to show that the logical problem of evil is a bust. All I need to do is give a defence. A logically possible way. And if I can do that, that will prove that God and evil can coexist. Um, William Lane Craig um, gives another example. He says, um, okay, I've got the claim evil exists, got the claim God exists. If I can add to these two claims a third claim, if I can add to the claim that God exists another claim from which it follows that evil exists, that would prove that God and evil are compatible. Because if I say premise one, God exists. Premise two, something. Conclusion, therefore there's evil. Since you've deduced the existence of evil from the existence of God and something else, they must be logically consistent with one another. Yeah? So William Lane Craig does this. He says, okay, premise one, God exists. Premise two, God has sufficient reasons for allowing evil to exist. Conclusion, therefore evil exists. Now, just so long as premises, premise two is possible, not plausible, not actually true, just possible, that proves that God and evil are logically consistent. And most, most atheist philosophers of religion agree. So as Michael Bergman says, um, there's nearly unanimous agreement among both theistic and non-theistic philosophers of religion that the logical version of the argument from evil doesn't work. Hence the uh, empty gas tank picture behind there. (laughs) So let's pause there before going on to the evidential. We might not have time to do the the existential but uh, better that we look at the the stuff that we're looking at rather than try and speed on through and be too superficial. (laughs) Anything from anyone? So if one could come up with any other however implausible one that would still do it I can't think of one. I mean, mm. about you demons. I've had a lot of trouble in the pub about whether. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> we phrase that, couldn't we? <laughs> 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 
<laughs> We've been Carry discussing yes. theology in the Pope yeah. and the nature of good and evil. Yeah. And um, maybe we'll get to it, but um, perhaps you could help me to answer the Pope question about where did the snake come from? If everything that God created was good. Yes, that, yeah. Oh, this is fascinating. This goes, oh gosh, we're getting into Genesis Sorry. and creation and uh, yeah. Augustine versus Irenaeus and all sorts, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the, the quickest thing I can, I can just point on that, when it says in Genesis, and it's this repeated affirmation of the goodness of creation, isn't there, in the beginning, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was very good. Yeah. The word being translated there as good. I am told, I'm not an expert in languages, but I'm told by my reading, um, the, the, the thought there really is the thought fit for purpose. Fitted. It does what God wants it to do. But to go from that to saying, and what God wanted it to be at the beginning of creation was, say, perfect, or morally perfect, is to make a, a stretch from what the language of the original a- actually says yeah um, so you can take it as, as, as being fit for purpose but that purpose might involve room for the misuse of free will this creation being you know, always intended to be recreated into the new heavens and the new earth it's not like the new heavens and the new earth was kind of plan B that God had to bring out of his back pocket when everything kind of plan A went wrong, you know, <laughs> um, and so on. This world is, is not all that we're concerned with. Particularly in, the, I mean, the Jews had very little concept of an afterlife or differences between destinations and so on, certainly in, in the early stages, but certainly later on, by the time you get into the New Testament, we're looking, you know, to his promise of the new heavens and the new earth and so on. I think that does come into theodicy and so on. But yeah, um, the language of, of, of its being good. Um, and certainly I, I, I'm, I've i been pretty convinced by arguments by people like um, Richard Swinburne, say, who would, who would argue that um, if you're morally, if you are morally perfect, how could you then sin? Um that what we say about God's creation of creatures with, with free will seems to perhaps imply a dark side to the creation that gives the possibility, at least, of rejection of God and turning away from him, um, that that's bound up with free will. But that's to take a more Irenean interpretation of creation and so on than Augustinian, and there's this whole long church debate on those different sort of views and so on. And then we'd get into the whole sort of Armenian and Calvinism. And, and so I don't want to open up too many cans of worms, but um, having opened them, I'm just going to leave them on the shelf there for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you. You said that most atheist philosophers agree that God and evil are logically consistent, therefore, mm. that's a, there, therefore that's a defence of the... Probably will. Do, do any of them believe it's plausible, or is that the point? Ah, this is, yeah, well, this is exactly the point we're going to now go on to. Yeah. What most atheists... So the, so the conversation 
principally because of what of Plantinga's work, the conversation moved on. And most atheists abandoned making the argument, look, there can't be a God, because look, that's evil. To saying, okay, okay, there could be a God, but that sure seems an implausible claim, given the fact that there's evil. Doesn't the existence of evil count against? Isn't it evidenced against? Isn't it really weighty, powerful, even overwhelming evidence against the view that there's a God of that nature just because it's possible doesn't mean that it's plausible as you say and so they move on to what's called the evidential problem of evil the typical atheist claim today is not that evil disproves knockdown QED incompatible the existence of God but that evil counts against the rationality of belief in God exactly so the evidential problem of evil comes in many forms. I'm going to, I'm going to use this way of putting it. Um, this is, I think, a pretty fairly representative way of putting the argument from evil against God that's not the logical problem. You might say something like this. One, look, I don't see a good reason why God would do or allow X. Be X a particular example of evil... Or the observation that there's so much evil in the world. Two, think through this with me as we go through this. And you see any problems. I don't see any good reason. Two, if I can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing X, then there probably, probably isn't one. I can see some, some, <laughs> some raised eyebrows there. Three, therefore, there's probably... No good reason for God to do or allow X. That would, if these two are true, that would follow. Uh, four, but unless there is a good reason why God would do or allow X, God doesn't exist. That is, you know, if God exists, no evil can be gratuitous. Or if God existed, he'd have to have a good reason for allowing this evil. We've already argued that it, it seems probable that he doesn't have a good... Couldn't, there isn't a good reason that he could have were he to exist. Therefore, it would follow five. God probably doesn't exist. You could put that on a bus, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. The atheist bus campaign. God probably doesn't exist. Now relax and enjoy your life. <laughs> what the connection between the two is, I'm not quite sure. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm not saying God definitely, you know, probably things to do with advertising standards, uh, I don't know. But uh, yeah, logically. This, <laughs> so obviously this, this is a, a weaker claim at the end than the logical problem of evil was making. But most atheists said, okay, the logical, that's a bust. But we can still make this claim. And that, that's surely sufficient. Maybe the existence of evil is still an overwhelming reason not to believe in God. There's an awful lot of problems in there, though, isn't there? Yeah. Could you really call yourself an atheist if you wanted to believe in God? Probably doesn't. Um, no, I, I, think, I think you could. I, I, I think, specifically speaking, an agnostic says, I don't know whether there is or whether there isn't. But, but knowing isn't something that just comes in a sort of binary, either you do or you don't. 100% or 0%, you know. Um, 
some things we know with 100% certainty. Um, there are no circular squares. Okay. Um, there is no Loch Ness Monster. Well, it's very probable that there's no Loch Ness Monster. Yeah? But can we be as sure about the non-existence of the Loch Ness Monster as you can about the non-existence of square circles? Or, or the surety that you exist. You know, you exist. Can you be as sure that I exist? Maybe I'm a figment of your... Maybe you're in the Matrix. No. Probably you're not. Okay, probably I do exist, yeah? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure of it, but then... You know. <laughs> but can you be... Um, so, our belief in things comes in a, in a spectrum of probability, and I think, uh, you know, if, if you said, well, you know, I'm, I'm 75% sure that there's no God, be perfectly decent for you to call yourself an atheist, just as if... By the way, if you said, I'm, you know, I'm 75% sure that there's a God, you could call yourself a theist. Um, am I 100% sure? Am I as sure that there's a God as I am that I exist, or that there are no square circles? Honestly, I don't think I am. Am I very confident that there's a God? Yeah. Or at least most of the time, you know, <laughs> when I'm not going through the long dark night of the soul when you're thinking of questions at three in the morning and you haven't had enough to eat. Um, you know, these things do vary in our lives, don't they? I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief. And so on. But, you know, so these things come in a spectrum, don't they? Now, these are the crucial premises, because this follows from these two, and this follows from that. So, you know, these are just deduct- deductions. So these are the crucial premises. And we can question all of them. Um, so I don't see a good reason why God would... Well, this is where theodicy really comes in. Theodicy is an attempt to say, well, I can see a good reason. Now, I think in a lot of cases, you probably can come up with at least a plausible reason. But I don't think you can in all cases. I think it would be implausible to say, well, we can just rebut this argument by saying, well, look, we've, we've got a complete comprehensive grasp of why God does what he does, and that will uh, completely satisfy your question as to why does God allow X, Y, and Z? Um, but we can, particularly if the argument's being mounted in terms of so much evil, maybe we can lessen the force of the argument by saying, well, a lot of that we can explain and understand. And the fact that we understand God on a lot of occasions gives us more confidence that we trust him when we don't and so on, particularly if we've made progress in understanding him over time and so on, that comes back later so perhaps theodicy can weaken the force of the argument a bit but not, it doesn't knock it out but then we're we're kind of weighing evidences against evidences now, we're not talking about here's a proof, well what can you do Um, we're weighing the scales uh, for example, um, free will theodicy as opposed to defence. C. Stephen Lehman um, says a loving God would have good reason to place persons in a situation in which they can achieve lives that are rich in meaning and significance. That seems good on balance. Other things being equal, a life that involves significant choices is more significant than one that doesn't. The significance of a choice is linked to its consequences, its expected outcomes. The benefit or harm the acts are apt to bring about or to prevent. So therefore, if a loving God exists, we ought to expect there to be opportunities to make choices between good acts that will provide great benefits or prevent great harms. Or therefore not 
prevent great harms. And acts, evil acts that will inflict great harm will prevent great benefits. That's the flip side to that. So if a loving God exists, it's not surprising that we've opportunities to freely perform very wicked acts. That's using free will as a theodicy rather than as just a defense. He says a free will theodicy, Layman says, on the Christian view, the existence of significant human freedom makes possible not only very wicked acts, but meaningful, eternal relationships of love and forgiveness between humans and, most significantly, between humans and God. Now, of course, love can exist without being chosen in that libertarian free will sense, because God is love, in the Trinity, there wasn't a time when you know God the Father started you know choosing to love God the Son, <laughs> but there is nonetheless we recognise a, a particular value, a particular type of value attached to love flowing out of libertarian free will, and those values in the Christian view can can have an eternal consequence which is something people often don't... The atheist community is so focused on this world. When you broaden, as I said earlier, the picture to the Christian view, this free will is actually connected to things in eternity as well. Uh, And even if it's difficult to kind of feel the weight of that value, or again, have a comprehensive understanding of how that's going to play out and so on, that again perhaps makes it more reasonable to believe that the the values that are permitted by free will will be worth it, as it were. The second premise, I saw eyebrows being clenched in perplexity when I read this out, which was good. If I can't see a good reason for God doing all our acts, then there probably isn't one. Okay, yeah. Um, Here's a fridge, a lovely picture of a fridge, one of those big American things. It would take up my entire kitchen. Couldn't fit anything else in it, but there we go. Okay, illustration. Um, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, um, are there any adult elephants in the fridge? No. Are you very sure that there are no adult elephants in this fridge? Yeah. Very sure. Okay. Um, are there any bacteria? Probably. Probably. Yeah. But how do you know that? By looking at the fridge? On your background knowledge. Um, are there any little pots of yogurt in that fridge? I can't, well, I can't tell. You can't see any. Well, because they might be behind something. Yeah, you always hear. My mum's always saying to my dad, look behind things. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a little pot of yogurt behind this bottle? You know, make, so just from looking at the fridge and saying, well, I can't see any little pots of yogurt. I don't see any Actimel or whatever. Um, other brands are available. Uh, is that a good reason? <laughs> is that a really good reason for holding that there aren't any? Being confident that there are no. Not, not a really... So, is saying, if I can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing X, then there probably isn't one. Is that more like saying there are no adult elephants in the fridge or more like saying there are no little pots of yoghurt? See? <laughs> Um, 
Gregory Gansel says this, the inference from the claim that it seems as though there's no sufficient reason to be found for evils, to the conclusion that it's probably the case that there are no sufficient reasons, is not a strong inference, at the very least. Here's another, here's a literary illustration, back to C.S. Lewis, so I thought I'd bring him in again. Um, Michael Ward, uh, his little book, The Narnia Code, his bigger book, Planet Narnia, and he um, very kindly graced me with a foreword to my C.S. Lewis book as well, so uh, give a, a shout-out for Michael Ward there. Um, this book, many, many literary theorists have criticised um, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia over the year by saying they seem to be a bit of a hodgepodge of influences and things. And here's one particular illustration. Um, how can characters in the world of Narnia know about Christmas? There is no Christ in Narnia. There's Aslan, of course. But what's Christmas? And particularly, what's Father Christmas doing, turning up in the world of Narnia? Um, it looks like a mistake. Looks like, well, that would be fun to throw in, but it looks like there's no underlying sort of logic to it. Well, Michael Ward had a bit of a brainwave while studying Lewis, uh, and, and he comes to this conclusion. The Narnia series was the literary equivalent of Holst's Planet Suite. Each one of the seven heavens of medieval astronomy, and Lewis, medieval scholar, and keen am- amateur astronomer as well, gives the key to a different chronicle. So, for example, the moon, the lunatic, the silver chair. And so on. It's fascinating stuff, and it gives lots and lots of parallels between the symbology in medieval thought of the, the seven planets that they knew about, the seven heavens, and the themes and things that only appear in particular chronicles of Narnia. And the matchup is, is to me, it's so overwhelming the number of matchups that there are that you say oh, this couldn't just be chance. You know, this is deliberate. Why do certain figures only appear in certain books? It's because th- that book is the one with the theme given by that planet of the. There's an underlying rationale going on. So, if Lewis was indeed writing his first Narnia Chronicle, The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, in order to express the spirit of Jove, the jovial planet, the jovial personality, we can see why he's so keen to keep Father Christmas in the story, even though on the face of it, Father Christmas doesn't belong there. There's all these literary associations. Sometimes a storyteller will do what seems logical on the surface, because he knows of a deeper logic going on underneath. If you haven't, quote from Lewis, grasped the real and inward significance of the work as a whole, then this illogical thing, uh, this illogical thing will look like a mere botch or failure of unity, quote Lewis. Um, Lewis knew all about literary unity and, you know, so on. Once we see that Jupiter's imagery is the inward significance of this Chronicle of Narnia, we'll see that Father Christmas is not a botch. Um, now, you have to read Narnia Code and so on. Uh, that's a much shorter one, very readable, um, to get more on, on that kind of thing. But I think Michael Ward has really noticed something about the, the literary structure of the Chronicles of Narnia that explains 
things that people had been sort of griping about for years, um, saying, oh, why, well, why this? Why that? Oh, that's a bit strange. There's something... Is it that Lewis is just not a very good story writer? <laughs> or is it actually that he's a really good story writer and we've only just caught up with him? You know? Um, when you say, well, why would God do something like that? I can't see a good reason. That seems like a bodge to me. Um, you know, maybe God's even cleverer than C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you even get this from, from, from advance in scientific understanding, for example. Think of, I mentioned earthquakes earlier. Um, most of us associate earthquakes with death and destruction, of course, but ironically, earthquakes are an inevitable outgrowth of geological forces that are highly advantageous to life. It's part of the carbon cycle of the planet, if you've uh, studied ge- geology. Plate tectonics makes possible the carbon cycle, which is essential to our planet's habit- habitability. Fine, have a planet without te- plate tectonics, but don't want to live there. <laughs> want to live there you better have some <laughs> so pays your money it takes choice what you know um, then again back to the the theodicy you could also mention it's not so much earthquakes that kill but substandard building regulations in a lot of cases um, I went to a, a lecturer um, from a guy from Christians in Science um, in um, the local Southampton group. It's still on the local Southampton group, Christians and Science website, if you want to hear it. Um, and he compared the, the 2010 uh, Hishi earthquake, that was a, a 7 on the Richter scale, uh, and that resulted in 230,000 deaths. But he compared that earthquake with the almost identical powered California earthquake that resulted in 57 deaths. So, two equally powerful earthquakes in populated areas. We said a lot of it was down to greed and corruption and people not going to the building regs in order to save money through corruption and things. Um, some of these things do overlap natural disasters and and so on, they do overlap with theodicy. Now, this might be a bit technical, but I think this is quite a significant point. Um, this is Nick Trakis and Eugene Nagasawa. Eugene Nagasawa is uh, an atheist philosopher of religion. They point out, think of it like this atheist philosopher of religion, yeah, yeah. Like um, Mackey or. Yeah. Parents have certain rights over their children that strangers don't. And these rights arise from the parents being, to some extent, the source of their children's existence, (coughs) as well as um, from their role as benefactor and provider for their children. Because of that relationship between the parents and the children, they've got rights over the children that other people don't. Similarly, God, in virtue of his role as our creator and benefactor, might have the right to allow us to endure things, they say abuse, murder, whereas we do not have those sorts of rights over each other. 
it's a bit of a, it's an extrapolation kind of argument, but it's, it's kind of like, well, if you've got the right to discipline your child in public, but I don't because I'm not its parent, or if you've got the right to expose your child to getting chicken pox as early as possible, when there's some goes around as parents used to do, so they don't get it later when it's more dangerous. But if I deliberately infected your child with chicken pox, that would be wrong. Okay? And if God is even more than our creator and benefactor than a parent is the creator and benefactor of a child, then God might have even more extensive rights over how he treats us. Uh, if God may have rights over us that we don't have over each other, then we've got good reason to think that, A, God may be morally justified in virtue of occupying this relationship, this role, in permitting a certain evil, but B, we cannot be morally justified in virtue of not occupying the same role in permitting the same evil. And there's a temptation to kind of say, well, a good person wouldn't allow X or do X, therefore God shouldn't allow. Now, this is not to say when we talk about the goodness of God and so on, that's completely different from the goodness of humans, because then what, what, what do you mean when you're saying God's good? You want to, you want to abstract any meaning from talking about God's character through this. But it does give you perhaps an insight of, of, of saying, actually, we want to be a bit careful about drawing too close an analogy and parallel between, say, parents and children and God and us. Because we talk about God as our father and so on. Well, yes, but that's an analogy. And in a sense, perhaps his rights over us, rights over us, are even more extensive than our parents' rights over children and, and so on, because he's even more the creator and benefactor and sustainer of us than we are of our children. Gregory Gansel combines responses to premises one and two. He says, given that God exists and has a good reason he has good reason to allow the evil he allows. Well, how likely is it that we should know what his reasons are? When someone asks you, well, why does God? Well, sometimes, when students sometimes ask me that, I'll say, well, I don't know. Why do you think I should? <laughs> I'm not expecting a question back <laughs> to it. Um, how likely is it that we should know? He says, I think we should expect to be able to discern some likely candidates in some cases, but not in others. Those who press the argument against God's existence overestimate the percentage of cases in which we ought to be able to figure out, figure this out. And they underestimate the percentage of cases in which we actually can figure it out. So he's saying theodicy and saying, well, actually, there are things that we know about God that makes it more plausible to say, well, I don't have to be able to understand be answer all of those questions it's not enough just that I don't have an answer for that to be an argument against to make that, that inference like with the fridge and so on and premise four well Peter Van in Vegan 
great name, isn't it? Philosopher Peter van Uwegen, Christian philosopher. He mounts a vagueness argument for moral gratuity, and he uses a, a nice illustration. Um, talks about prison sentences. And obviously, we, we say sometimes we, we, we feel that it is just and it is right to, to punish people and send people to prison for certain jail terms, for certain crimes. He says, well, a sentence of 10 years is no more effective at deterring, punishing, and so on, than one of nine years and 364 days, surely. Is that extra day in the sentence, is that really the, the day that makes all the difference, that makes it just as a punishment? That seems a bit implausible. Um, but then if you say that, why not take off, why not say, well, nine years and 363 days? And if you say that, why not? And, but, that's, but there'll come a point where you say, you know, so where do you draw the line, as it were? If, if no gratuitous, that's evil that's not a necessary precondition of something else, if no gratuitous evil is ever permissible, then a just punisher wouldn't sentence the criminal to 10 years. Because that extra day is just gratuitous. It's not a necessary precondition of adequately punishing them. But this argument can be reiterated ad infinitum until we conclude that no jail term is just. Um, but surely some jail term or other is just. The solution to this paradox is to recognise that effective deterrence or punishment is vague. A perfect moral judge must simply draw a line of demarcation somewhere and for any place he draws it, it will be true that he's drawing it at a slightly different place, you know, a second here or there, would have been just as effective would have been just as just. Um, so this idea that everything just, you know, there has to be this necessary connection. So sometimes you can't make a necessary connection, but you just have to draw an arbitrary line. But that is actually the just thing to do. There's no precise number or quality of evil things in Vegan argues, that must occur in order to secure certain compensating goods or prevent equally bad or worse consequences. So he says, you don't have to argue that for every evil, God has a compensating good or a compensating prevention of a worse evil. He says, that premise is, is just wrong. He says, God cannot remove all evil from the world now, for that would frustrate his plans for reuniting human beings with himself. And if he prevents only some evils, how shall he decide which ones to prevent? Where shall he draw the line? Wherever he draws the line, it will be an arbitrary line. But then, pointing out that God's drawn an arbitrary line is no more of an argument against the justice of God than pointing out that a judge giving someone a 10-year sentence instead of a, you know, 364 days, 59-minute sentence is, is arbitrary, is gratuitous. So actually, you can at least, through theodicy, lessen the strength of premise one, and you can call into question premise two, at least lessen its strength, so that's not a very strong inference at the very best, and premise four seems wrong. And you still might be sitting there, as I might still be you know, standing here, thinking, yeah, but, okay, it's not, 
Maybe it's not a very strong argument. Maybe it's a very weak argument. But maybe it's still evidence against. But is it overwhelming evidence against? Does it overwhelm... Well, does it overwhelm what? On the other side, as it were. Uh, Michael Tooley, atheist philosopher, says the evidential argument is highly controversial even if it can be shown that evils found in the world render the existence of God unlikely it might still be the case that the existence of God is not unlikely all things considered perhaps the argument from evil can be overcome by appealing to positive arguments in support of the existence of God or the idea that belief in the existence of God is, is properly basic it, it, it's just like your belief that you know, do you, what did you have for breakfast today? When you just remember. Do you have to go through some sort of argument? Do you have to go through the evidence? Do you have to do some forensic science before you can reliably tell me what you had for breakfast? You know? um, Plantinga um, gives the example of someone accused of a crime and against whom all the evidence presented in court stands, even though the person knows they're innocent. They know they didn't do it. They remember not committing the crime, being elsewhere. But their alibi, nobody backed up their alibi, they were alone, all the evidence presented in court is against them. In such a case, that person is not rationally obliged to abandon belief in his own innocence. Just because all of the evidence is against him. <laughs> um, <laughs> the belief that he didn't commit the crime intrinsically defeats the defeaters brought against it by the evidence. Um, maybe if you've got the right religious experience, it's like that. And maybe when you're saying, oh, here's evil. Well, maybe there's some sort of argument that can be constructed from that that, that, that it's a clue that points against. There's a bit of evidence against God. Um, well, let's put it in the balance pan <laughs> against all of the uh, positive arguments that could be constructed as a case for believing in God of a certain kind. And um, when you've gone through that whole process, when you've looked at the evidence on balance and taken everything into consideration, where does it hang out? Yeah. <coughs> he just talks about that, doesn't he? Is it in Christianity as well? He has that same analogy for the balance scales and the suffering and good and evil and balance. Right. I'm sure it would be Right. So, uh, we're not going to have time to go on to the, um, the existential argument, but I'll, I'll, I'll end with this quote from Marilyn McCord Adams because it starts just getting into the existential thing um, and talking about. Um, you know, the more personal rather than just the sort of deductive arguments and all of that. Um, Marilyn McCord Adams, Christian philosopher of religion, says, relative to human nature, participation in horrendous evils and loving intimacy with God are alike disproportionate. For the former evil threatens to engulf the good in an individual human life with evil. While relationship with God guarantees the reverse engulfment of evil by good. Relative to one another there's also disproportion because the good that God is, an intimate relationship with him, is incommensurate, incommensurate with created goods and evils alike. Because intimacy with God so outscales relations, good or bad, with any creatures, integration into the human person's relationship with God of these goods and evils that we also relate to, that is, 
confers significant meaning and positive value even on horrendous suffering. Because we bring our suffering with us into our relationship with God. And indeed God brings our suffering into his relationship with us and his own suffering of our suffering and of our evil and so on into that relationship. And God is the greatest possible good. Um, and she says, it's just, it's like, to go to the last quotation that I was going to, to go to, skipping over a couple of film clips from The Fifth Element. Ooh, look, what's that? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Talking about how you, how you deal with evil, how you actually cope with it in your life. You know, an atheist like Peter Atkins ends up saying, oh, we're children of chaos. The deep structure of, of change of the universe is decay. There is only corruption. The unstemmable tide of chaos. Gone is purpose. All that's left is direction. There's no given purpose. This is the bleakness we have to accept as we peer deeply and dispassionately into the heart of the universe, as materialism describes it. The Apostle Paul, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager anticipation, expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. In terms of actually giving you the gumption to face up to and cope with <laughs> suffering, again, the Christian view very seemingly plains to outstrip the atheist one. And I don't think there's anything that can be said from evil that mounts an argument that overwhelms the rationality of having that hope. Christopher Hitchens. He, I mean, he was very good in his atheism at saying that, you know, that yeah. I can't get upset about this because this is just the way it is. Yeah. But it's such a bleak. Yeah. You know, anyone watching it, it's just such a, yeah. a hopeless yeah. view, isn't it? Yeah. And as Dawkins says, you know, things are, aren't made true just because they'd be nice if they were true. But it would sure make you want to look hard at whether or not you really were being forced to have that bleak view or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be something, a point that would make you want to be not dismissive about investigating the Christian hope hard. Mm-hmm. And as, as, as Greg said, on the same lines as sort of Pascal, if, if you thought that the evidence was completely equally balanced for and against, so that you couldn't make your mind up on the basis of evidence, but you've got to believe mm-hmm. something isn't the rational thing to do to, to have the optimistic view that actually... <laughs> That's kind of arguably where I end up when yeah. I argue with people who are atheists. I'm like, well, even if I'm wrong mm-hmm. and I've thought about it, my life is better lived this way, so I'm going to go this way. Um, that's kind of where I get to. Yeah. Mm. I think... 
we can't give up on the intellectual discussion and, and debate, but we do have to remember the personal context. And, and I think this sort of Pascalian point says this is a really important thing to, to pursue in the, in, in the intellectual um, and that people can't be dismissive of it um, and that un, even, even, if, even if the evidence were equal, and I don't think it is, it would still be rational. What you need for it to be irrational to have the Christian view is to have overwhelming evidence, to have evidence against it. Um, and actually, I think the evidence is tipped in the other direction. Um, uh, uh, Peter, why do you yeah. think that we've got this militant secularism, atheism? Why, is there, why are they so against people having a Christian belief yeah. or any faith? Where's that coming yeah. from? Partly it's because of 9 11. Oh, that, that religion yeah. is bad in, it does, in all causes people to do terrible things. The, the root of that is a misunderstanding of, of what faith means. <coughs> that, that they are in favour of being rational, and they think that faith automatically means not being rational. It means believing things against the evidence, against the evidence, or at least in the absence of it. Um, I don't think that's true. That's a misunderstanding of at least mainstream Christian tradition of what faith is. Slurus says, you know, faith is the art of holding on to things your mind has been convinced of in the face of temptation and so on. Um, it's not faith or reason, it's faith and, and reason intimately. Um, so because they have that misunderstanding and because they have a very narrow view of what it is to be rational, that this, basically, this, this scientific, it's rational to believe something if you have evidence that it's true and, and that's it. What's your evidence for that? Oh, oh hang on. Um, <laughs> maybe a, a broader view of what rationality is. Um, but uh, yeah, because they have a narrow view of rationality and a misunderstanding of what faith is, that leads them to think even the nicest, you know, C of E, C of e vicar at the garden party um, is actually giving people, um, giving an endorsement of having blind faith. And blind faith is really, really dangerous because if you're prepared to have blind faith, you can get convinced to fly aeroplanes into tower blocks. Or invade countries in or, the 12th century. Yeah, etc, etc. Et um, so, and there's an interesting thing, that although they won't make the, moral, the, the, the problem of evil argument against God, most of the new atheists, they will point to the evils of religious people. Mm-hmm. Of course, most people want to ask, but on the one hand you're saying it's, they're doing evil things and that's because they're not living up to their intellectual responsibilities by having blind faith. But on the other hand, they tend to say things like, there is no good or evil, <laughs> so they're not really doing objectively evil things, and there's no objective moral responsibility to be rational. <laughs> and by the way, actually, most of them are determinists as well, and say people don't have free will, so you're not living up to your intellectual responsibilities that you don't have any choice about. <laughs> so the whole, you know, there's a pack of cards, <laughs> but yeah, that's where they're coming from.